So a while ago, I told you guys, uh, a couple weeks ago, I told you guys about how when you're church planting, they make you write up all this different stuff that you're never going to use. And um, <clears throat> one of those things is called a discipleship pathway. Like a lot of churches have these. Right? It's called a discipleship pathway. And so I wrote up some big elaborate thing so that we could fundraise and people would give me money. Uh, and then we never talked about it again. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, a few months ago, whatever it was, we were, I was talking about, I was thinking about discipleship pathway. And boy, I was like, man, this thing is really complicated. And I thought a better one, and it came out of some text we were reading, is just the idea of um, our discipleship pathway here at the porch. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you. It's just breathing. You breathe in the gospel, and then you breathe out the gospel. Take the gospel in, send the gospel out. Gospel in, gospel out. And so how do we take the gospel in? How do we breathe in gospel truth? Well, we do it through a few ways. We do it through sermons, Sunday morning. We sit together and we read random 2,500-year-old or 2,700-year-old books. Um, we talk about stuff on Wednesday nights. We do Bible study. You know, we're doing our Why There Is No God book. Um, but just individually, we, you spend time reading the Bible. You spend time corporately with each other, worshiping. Um, we spend time together. That's a huge way to take the gospel in, is to sit with somebody else and you talk about your life, and then they preach gospel. You know, we speak the gospel to each other, right? By being a part of a church, we're giving each other uh, permission to have the other person speak the gospel into our lives. So we do that. Um, you know, we sing songs, we listen to music, all that stuff. We take the gospel in. There's more than that, but you get the idea, right? We're taking the gospel in. But then at the same time, we breathe the gospel out. And you guys know, because I say it every week, I joke around how I'm going to beat you to death with Pabst, but that's what we're doing, right? We have the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway. We, by the way, I was just looking. I forgot we had those over there. There's like magnets for the fridge and stickers for your water bottle. Uh, I'll give 500 bucks to anybody that gets a Pabst Blue Ribbon tattoo. Has to be neck or higher. There was a place, this is completely nothing to do with anything, but there was a place here in the city that did that once when I was in high school. If anybody gets a tattoo of our logo, you get a free burrito every day. And then they didn't think about this is in Indianapolis and everybody here just gets tattoos for nothing and a bunch of people got it. And the lady did the math and was like, oh, I'm on the hook for $6 million worth of burritos if all these people <laughs> live till 80. So they canceled it pretty quick, but anyway. So that's what we'll do. Pass blue ribbon, I'll give you a free burrito. Um, but what we do is we... It's pray for somebody, ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We share our own story. We talk about the way that we came to know the king. And then we um, uh, that's share, talk about the gospel, right? We teach the gospel. Um, I should probably hammer that down, which one, though. Is it talk about or teach? What is it? Eh, they both kind of work, right? I think I go back and forth. Uh, but here's the question. As John stands up here every week and says, Paps Blue Ribbon, Paps Blue Ribbon. You're like, I heard about this already. And then I go, Paps Blue Ribbon. The question is, what's our motivation? What's our motivation for doing this? Right? A new neighbor moves into the building, into your building or whatever. So you spark up a conversation. And at some point, you kind of become friendly. And the opportunity to talk about something with faith comes up. And your strongest instinct is going to be, I'm just going to let this be. I'm not going to jump into this conversation of faith. I'm not going to ask more questions. This could go really bad. So, or uh, maybe the opportunity comes up for you to bless them in ways nobody else would. Let me help you with that in a way that no neighbor would ever offer to help, right? Not just like, here's a bowl of sugar, but something deep. 
And your instinct is going to be, now let's not do this. This is going too deep. This is going to be awkward. This is going to be weird. So in that moment, when you have a decision to make, am I going to pass the blue ribbon or... And if, with no context, by the way, this sounds really weird. Or am I going to uh, just kind of let this be and be a normal San Francisco neighbor just like everybody else? What's your motivation going to be in those moments? What is it that's going to push us from nah to let me tell you about my faith. Let me tell you, let me help you with that. Let me ask you a question about what you believe. And I'll say this, under no circumstances, it, it will never really work if your motivation in that moment is guilt. Guilt is, not, is a terrible motivator for our Pabst Blue Ribbon Breathe Out the Gospel pathway for a lot of reasons. But at the basic reason, guilt only works short term. Guilt is never a long-term motivator. It might work for a week or two. It might work once or twice but it won't produce 50 plus years of serving the Lord in San Francisco. We need something stronger than guilt, right? Guilt is like those command hooks. You guys know command hooks, okay, with the double-sided tape. And um, they stick on for a little bit, but eventually whatever you hang that thing on is going to fall off the wall. There's no archaeologists in uh, 500 years who are going to dig up our civilization and go look at all these command hooks everywhere with the double-sided tape, right? We need something more permanent, right? Like you guys know I've been doing stuff in my new office area. We've been moving everything in our house and I had to put up some hooks and so I drilled them into the wall. That's a little bit more permanent. So my question is what are the, what's the more permanent, deeper motivation, right? What's something that will have a deeper impact on the way that we engage in this Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff together? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're still in Ezekiel. Um, I want to give you a quick recap. So chapters, uh, would that be 8, 9, 10, and 11, are all one vision. So Ezekiel is sitting at his mud hut uh, by the Kibar Canal in a suburb of Babylon. And he, uh, the elders are there. And they're asking all sorts of questions of Ezekiel. This was last week's sermon. And he has this vision. And in the vision, he's transported to the temple. And he sees the throne chariot from chapter 1. And in this uh, temple vision, the first thing he sees, God takes him all over the temple and says, look at what that guy's doing, look at what that guy's doing, look at what these women are doing, and those guys and these leaders. And what all of it was, was idolatry. There was this, on one part of the temple, they were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians, because they were like, in this war between Egypt and Babylon, maybe Egypt will win. We want to be on those gods' side. But on the other side of the temple, they were worshiping the gods of Babylon. Maybe they're going to win. So we're kind of hedging our bets, right? So they're all over. And God says, I hate this. I hate what's happening here. I don't just not like it. I hate it. And so what he does is he calls together this angelic hit squad. It's one of the weirdest parts of the Bible. And these angels show up, and they have a leader. He's the guy in linen. And the, the oh, I forget how many angels there were now that I'm saying this out loud. Six, six of them. And they have these clubs in the vision. And God says, I want you guys to go around. And anybody that looked at the idolatry in the temple and went, ugh. That's the exact Hebrew, ugh. Uh, he goes, anybody that said that, I want you to put a mark on their forehead. And then when you're done with that, I need you to go around, and I need you to club everybody else to death. That's some serious stuff. And so this is what happens. They put the mark on everybody's forehead. We're not even told if they found anybody with, that needed the mark. 
And then they go around and they start clubbing people to death. And Ezekiel cries out, how can you keep, how can you do this, right? This is your people, God. And then right when that happens, the man in linen, look at the end of, um, the end of chapter 9. Then the man, in, the man clothed in linen, carrying writing equipment, reported back, I've done all that you've commanded me. So while Ezekiel is weeping and crying, uh, he, the guy in charge of this angelic hit squad comes back, and in a very somber moment, he says, all right, we're done. And what we talked about was this was a vision of what was going to happen when, it was not literally there wasn't an angel who went around clubbing people in Jerusalem, but this was a vision about what was going to happen when the Babylonian army came through um, and destroyed Jerusalem. And so on that cheerful note, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 10. Then I looked, and there above the expanse over the heads of the cherubim was something like a throne with the appearance, the appearance of lapis lazuli. So again, um, he sees these cherubim. Um, this is, uh, you guys know the cherubim. We've talked about them a little bit. These are the angelic beings from chapter one. Here he actually gives them a name. He calls them the cherubim. These are the same creatures that guarded Eden when God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden. He put two cherubim to stand there and guard the entrance so they couldn't back in, get back in. Um, these are the angels, the angelic beings that were on top of the throne. I'm sorry, on top of the, what's it called? The, from uh, Indiana Jones, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it's from the Bible too. And um, uh, these are the beings that sat on the, that with their wings touching, created the mercy seat. They were God's like personal assistants, right? These were the the, the agents, the attendants, they serve and worship God. And so Ezekiel now, in the middle of this thing, he looks up and what does he see? He sees these guys again. And then verse 2, the Lord spoke to the man clothed in linen. So again, this guy is the leader of that angelic hit squad that we just read about in chapter 9. Uh, this was like, he was the director. He had the clipboard with the, the notes on it and he was telling everybody, there's some people over there, there's some people over there. And he said... Uh, and said, go inside the wheelwork beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with blazing coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. So he went in as I watched. So he says, fill your hands with the, remember the cherubim and the wheels and the whole thing. We're going to read more about it in a minute. But there was like, in chapter one, it's fire is everywhere. They're in the middle of this storm that comes from the north and there's this fire swirling around. And um, so the man in linen now, he has to go over and... Uh, grab some of that, the coals from that fire. And when you hear about coals and fire in the Old Testament, you're supposed to think of something right away. And that something uh, is the, it's an image of judgment. We remember this from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? From uh, in the book of Genesis, where God called down, you know, the angels sent down fire and brimstone, the whole thing, right? This is kind of the image you're supposed to think of. God is, uh, and these angels, they're, what they're doing here is judging. Now, verse three, now the cherubim were standing to the south of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud it filled the inner court. So they're on the south side of the temple. Um, at the beginning of chapter 9, uh, sorry, at the beginning of chapter 8, they started on the other side. So they've kind of worked their way through. Uh, I don't really have a map to draw this out, but they're kind of working their way around the temple. And now they're on the other side. They've traveled a considerable, a considerable distance. The temple mount was pretty big, like a few city blocks. Verse 4, then the glory of the Lord. Oh, by the way, okay, um, I'm going to go back and forth with this. Remember, real quick, I told you um, the name Yahweh shows up so many times in Ezekiel. The name Yahweh means I am, right? But in English translations, they translate it Lord. 
most of the time. Um, <coughs> so I was talking to Chris about this, and I was saying, yeah, and what I've been doing is, then the glory of Yahweh rose above. I like that. But he was like, try this. So I'm going to go back and forth between the word Yahweh. He goes, try changing it to the I am. Because that's like the English, right? It's I, I am existence, I am being. So we're going to go back and forth in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to say Yahweh and we're going to say I am, but it's the same Hebrew word. Here we go. Then the glory of the I am rose from above the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the I am's glory. So now we have this throne chariot and what it does from chapter one, from the vision in chapter one, it moves up to the, the very edge of the temple. In verse 4, and then verse 5, the sound of the cherubim's wings could be heard as far as the outer court. It was like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And so again, what's happening now is the judgment has happened, uh, or has already kind of started, and the scene becomes very chaotic, just like chapter 1, 2, and 3, like chapters 1, 2, and 3, the, the original vision. It's getting loud, there's fire everywhere, the throne of God is moving. And verse 6, after the Lord commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, take fire from inside the wheelwork from among the cherubim. Um, so again, he reaches in there, he grabs the, the fire. The, men went, the man went in and stood behind a wheel. Verse 7, then the cherub reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took some and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. So again, this is all pictures of judgment. This is the guy who's the leader of um, the judgment squad. We're going to kind of fly through this chapter here to get to the next chapter because a lot of this is repeated from chapter one. So watch this. The cherubim appeared to have the form of human hands under their wings. So again, this is super creepy and weird, but in this big fiery scene, you remember there's these angels and they have four faces and their wings, they have four wings and they're out touching and they have like hoof kind of legs. Anyway, and then at some point they open up the wings and like these little baby hands stick out. <laughs> no, not really though. What? You remember that skit from SNL with the baby hands? No, okay. That's what I picture here. But something like a hand sticks out. In verse 9, I looked and there were four wheels beside the cherubim and one wheel, sorry, one wheel beside each cherub. The luster of the wheels was like the gleam of barrel. In appearance, all four looked alike, like a wheel within a wheel, the original Escalade spinners. That's what we've been saying. Verse 11, when they moved, they would go in any of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. But wherever the head faced, they would go in that direction without pivoting as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, hands, wings, and the wheels that the four of them had were full of eyes all around. Now, again, if you remember from chapter one, we talked about this, that um, uh, the, the eyes part all over the wheels. Um, in Akkadian, which was the language that they spoke in Babylon, uh, the word I was used for like a fancy jewel. And so he's speaking in Hebrew, but he's using the same idiom. So this doesn't mean, so you see all these pictures and they're covered in eyeballs. And like, that doesn't make sense because the rest of the vision is talking about how they're covered in jewels and gold and lightning and all, you know, all this beautiful stuff. And then these weird eyes. So it's probably he's using it. It's just they're covered in jewels as well. Um, but again, a lot of this is repeated from chapter one. The question is, why does he repeat so much of these are phrases exactly from chapter one? Um, because if I saw the throne of God and the angelic secret service holding up the throne chariot, if I saw that twice, I would tell people about it twice. It's a pretty good reason, right? It's been a little bit over a year now since he's seen this, and it happened again, and so he gets back into the detail. This is like, you know, kids tell you the same thing like a hundred times, and you're like, all right, haven't I heard this already, you know? You might have heard about that. 
this is like that, except for it's actually worth hearing twice, okay? Verse 13, uh, as I listened, this is a really weird verse, as I listened to the wheels were called a wheel work. Okay, sure. Uh, keep going, no. Uh, as he was listening to this whole scene, somebody was talking about the wheels. It doesn't tell us who was talking. And it's interesting, there's two different words for wheel. One means like wheel, and one means like wheel machine contraption thing, right? And so he's like, oh, it's not just a wheel. It's like a wheel machine. Okay, I don't know why that's important, but it's in the Bible, you know? Uh, but it's just, it, it, I think the idea is this is way more complicated than what Ezekiel really understands. He doesn't get the full picture of what's going on here. Verse 14. Each one had four faces. I know you already told us this in chapter one. One was the face of a cherub, so that's a little change, but we're not going to get into that now. The second, the face of a human. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. The cherubim ascended. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kibar Canal. So he tells us more about them, and he goes, because you guys remember, I told you about this in chapter one. Verse 16. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when they lifted their wings to rise from the earth, even... The wheels did not veer away from them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stood still. And when they ascended, the wheels ascended with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Again, all this is repeated from chapter one, but it's really weird how much time in these two chapters he spends talking about these wheels. And I think the reason is because this is the part that blew his mind the most. Right? He's never seen anything that can move like this, like sideways, forward, without turning. You know, and this thing is just moving in any direction, 360 degrees, you know, like this thing is, yeah, it's just taken off. And he's like, I, I couldn't figure out how it worked, right? I've seen chariots, I've seen horses, I've seen the whole thing. And, and then there were these wheels and they were spinning inside the wheels. And I think he probably died not really understanding how this worked. And that's why his mind was blown by this. All right, for us, we have seen everything with CGI and we're just like, yeah, okay, it went that way, it's fine. Uh, verse 18, then the glory of the I am moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up the wings and ascended from the earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the God of Israel was above them, and it stopped at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. And so all of this is happening, and he's blown away by the wheels and the eyes on the, you know, the, the jewels on the wheels and all this stuff. But then what he notices is, oh, this is kind of depressing. Because what's happening is God is moving further and further away from the Holy of Holies, where his presence was supposed to live in a special way, where he came down and the dedication of the temple and he consumed the sacrifice. And, you know, this was a central part of their whole belief system was that God lives in Jerusalem. And now, in this whole chaotic scene, he's moving step by step. You know, it's like um, in the movies or TV when somebody, like, slowly inches away, you know, in the background of whatever is actually happening. Like, that's kind of what's happening here. God is inching away. Verse 20. Um, These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I recognized that they were the cherubim. Each had four faces, each had four wings, what looked like human hands under the wings. Their faces looked like the same faces I had seen by the key bar canal, and each creature went straight ahead. So again, all of that's from chapter one. Because, I mean, this is a pretty crazy vision to see. And I mean, you can understand why he wrote all this down twice, right? I mean, it's nuts. Nobody else had ever seen anything. There was no Ezekiel that he got to read before this and go, oh, those are the things from Ezekiel, right? He's the first one. And it's completely mind-boggling to him, the glory as he sees this throne chariot and he sees the glory of God. 
But again, the, the main theme here is that glory of God and the chariot that was holding up his throne is slowly inching away from the, uh, the temple. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Then the Spirit lifted me up. I like this too because do you remember last time we talked about how the Spirit grabbed him by the hair and lifted him up? And it's the, I'm just assuming that every time it says now the Spirit lifts me up, he's grabbing him by the hair and he yanks him. So the Spirit grabs him by the hair, lifts him up, and brought me to the eastern gate of the I Am's house, which faces east. And the gate's entrance, and at the gate's entrance were 25 men. Among them I saw Jeazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. So here's two more guys. Um, this is a different J. Azaniah from last week. It's a very popular name, still is. One of the most popular names in America, J. Azaniah. And uh, if anybody needs baby names, right, here you go. No, these are leaders. We don't know a lot about them except that their name shows up here. Again, not a great way to get your name in the Bible, by the way, as the idolatrous, evil leaders of the people of God. And the Lord said to me, son of man, these are the men who plot evil and give wicked advice in this city. So the only thing we know about these guys from all of history is that God himself says these guys suck. Ooh, that's rough. Uh, what, is, what is it that they said that lead the people away? This is what he says. They're, they're um, giving wicked advice. What are they doing? Verse 3. What's the wicked advice? They're saying, isn't the time near to build houses? Isn't the time near to build houses? So Jeremiah is a contemporary of Ezekiel. So while Ezekiel is in... Um, Babylon prophesying to the people. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem at the same time giving pretty similar prophecies. And in Jeremiah, um, what Jeremiah is telling the people is that the Babylonians are coming and the Babylonians are uh, God's judgment. And so instead of fighting this, God is telling you, you need to surrender. If you surrender, this is going to go a lot better for you. And the people there, some of these false prophets, and we're going to talk about these in the next few weeks after Easter, we're going to talk about the false prophets. They're telling the people, no, 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 God will always protect his house. God will always protect his people as long as they're within the walls of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, God has no plans to protect you. He has no plan. You need to surrender. Um, and so these, there's this battle between Jeremiah and these prophets. And now these guys, these leaders, they're jumping into this debate as well. He says, the Babylonians, they're not going to get us. It's cool. Go ahead and build a house in Jerusalem, right? You're going to be fine. It doesn't matter. They're not coming. That's what this means. And then they pile on with this second metaphor, which is one of the weirdest parts, again, of Ezekiel. The city is the pot and we are the meat. Again, nobody in the history of the world has ever tattooed this on their forearm, this random verse from, you know. Again, this is another one of those really good verses to um, write on a birthday card, and then see if the person actually looks at the verse, because they'll, they'll definitely come back to you. What do you mean the meat? Right? Okay, here's what's going on. We eat meat every day. I had salami for lunch. It was delicious. You know what I'm going to have for dinner? Probably more meat. And maybe sometimes I like to take one animal, and then I like to take the dead body of another animal and put them together and eat it that way. Bacon cheeseburger, right? That was one of my favorite memes back in the day. It was a, a pig laying down with a cow, and it said, best friends forever. And then the next panel was a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah. Right? So we eat a lot of meat. We're, we were meat eaters, you know. Um, in the ancient world, meat was very valuable, and it was not eaten every day. It was, a, it was, value, it was special. Um, and so this saying means we're valuable. We're something special, and we're surrounded by this cast iron pot that's going to protect us. These are the walls of Jerusalem. The, the implication is the exiles, they're the ones under judgment. 
We're still here, though. We're the valuable ones. We're important. We're in Jerusalem. We're the ones that didn't get sent into exile. We're the good kids. Christopher Wright, who's a commentator, he said this. I don't have a quote for this up here, but let me just read this to you. Not only is this group of pompous men engaged in planning their future, apparently completely unaware of the mayhem in the city that will soon overtake them, but they're doing so in the very spot they're sitting in the east gate of the temple where the glory of the Lord had just passed on its exit from the city, on his exit from the city. There they are uh, complacently assuming their own safety when the Lord himself, their only possible protector, has just left and they didn't even notice. So if you look at the... um, the, the path that God moves across, he moved through this gate, past this, and he's leaving. He walked right past these guys, and they didn't even notice. In verse 4, so God tells him, therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, son of man. Then the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the I am, came on me, and he told me, you are to say this. This is what the I am says. That is what you are thinking, house of Israel, and I know the thoughts that arise in your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. He says, when the siege happens to these leaders of the people, it's going to be your fault. You know why? Because Jeremiah showed up like the watchman of Ezekiel 3. He showed up and he told you what to do, and you completely ignored him. And so when you ignore the word from God, this is what happens. Then verse 7, therefore, this is what the Lord God, the I am... Yahweh Elohim says, the slain you have put within it are the meat, and the city is the pot, but I will take you out of it. So Ezekiel takes the imagery, and he flips it in mockery. He says, you're not protected by the pot, you're going to be cooked. That's what he says. You think that you're all great, but you're about to get cooked. Verse 8, you fear the sword, so I'll bring the sword against you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will take you out of the city, and hand you over to foreigners. I will execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the I am. You're so smug and so sure of your protection, all these leaders, but that's not how it's going to be. It's actually going to be the opposite. You're going to fall by the sword. You're going to try to run away. You're not going to make it, which is exactly what happens. right? The king tries, during the escape from Jerusalem, the king tries to escape, and he makes a run for it with his family. And the Babylonian army catches up to him, and they take him. And in front of the king, they kill all his kids. That's why the kids are in the back, by the way. This is a PG-13 Bible study. They slaughter his, his heirs in front of him. And then they poke his eyes out, so that was the last thing he ever saw. Right? These are the leaders. The rest of the leaders, a lot of these guys died and different things. Um, Again, verse 11, the city will not be a pot for you, and you will not be the meat in it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, then verse 12, so that you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the I am, whose statutes you have not followed, whose ordinances you have not practiced. Instead, you've acted according to your own ordinances, uh, according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now, while I was prophesying, Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Whew. This is, I mean, as if the angelic hit squad wasn't bad enough. He's in the middle of, in the vision, he has to go and he has to prophesy to the people. And as he's doing it, remember, this is a vision, but the vision corresponds to reality. Like it's supposed to teach Ezekiel something about reality. Um, I would bet, as most commentators and scholars think, that at the exact moment that Ezekiel was sitting in his hut in Babylon, 
And we don't know what he looked like while the elders were sitting around while he had this vision. We don't know if the vision was like a second, if it was like 20 minutes, if it was like an hour and a half or two days. We have no idea. But he's having this vision. And at some point, he has this vision. Um, I bet well, he's sitting in his hut over in real Jerusalem that this guy fell over dead. That's probably what happened. Just like you guys know, there's a few times where this happens, where God judges somebody instantly like this. One guy is named uh, Uzzah, Uzzah, I don't know how to say it. He reaches out and he grabs the Ark of the Covenant because it's fallen off the thing when you're not supposed to touch it, and he dies. We're not getting into that now. Or there's Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They lie to Peter, and Peter's like, well, you didn't lie to me, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he dies, and then the wife comes in, and she lies too, and it's like one of the most sobering verses in the Bible when your pastor says, hey, by the way, the guys who just carried your dead husband out of here are about to carry you out, and then she falls over and dies. That's like some serious business. This is what happens here. This guy, Pelatiah, he falls over dead. And I would bet that at some point, somebody from Jerusalem made their way to Babylon. And they were like, did you guys hear about Pelatiah? And they go, wait, wait, did he die? And the guy goes, yeah, wait, how'd you know? Wait, when did it happen? Tuesday at three, Tuesday? He might be a real prophet, you know? Like this definitely bolstered Ezekiel's cred with these elders that he shares this vision with. And so this is a lot for Ezekiel to take in, though. I mean, you got to remember, nothing about the judgment of God is fun. Nothing about what he just saw is like, I, I said this last week. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting if it was a movie and it was fake, but this is a real vision that happened with a real guy. And the idea of like these Bible ninjas killing people is actually terrifying because these are God's Bible ninjas and they're going around and they're killing people. And so this is a lot for Ezekiel to take in. He watches this hit squad. He watches Pelatiah. I guess I'm betting he knew Pelatiah because he names him my name. And remember, Ezekiel was training to be a priest. So maybe this was somebody who was part of his priest training. We have no idea who this guy was. But naming him, I bet he knew who he was. And so he's watching this guy die. And he's giving this message about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And so he says, Then I fell down, then I fell face down, and I cried out loudly, Oh, Yahweh God, oh, I am, you are bringing the remnant of Israel to an end. This is the most important verse in the whole text. And let me tell you why. As more time passed in exile for the people taken in those first, remember, there were three total waves of exile. At this point, though, only two of them had happened. And so for all the people in those first two waves of exile, they probably lived with less and less hope that they would ever go back to Jerusalem, that God would ever help them out, that they were ever going to be made right with God. And they looked at Jerusalem and thought, well, at least not all of us were taken captive. At least Jerusalem is still there. Um, it's like when one of my favorite giants gets traded. It happens all the time or leaves the team. And then that year, like, I don't know, this year, who saw the game today? Oh, can we score a run? Come on, people. But anyway, when the team stinks like they do right now, at least I can watch my favorite player on a good team and go... Well, even though my team stinks, I have some hope from watching him. I can get some joy from watching him. This is what the people in exile are doing. They're like, look, my team stinks. We can't get a run off of the Yankees, you know what I mean? But at least over there, my favorite players from back in the day, they're doing well. They're, our hope is not here. Our hope is over there. That's what's going on here. They were losing hope for themselves. Uh, but no hope for them, right? It doesn't mean they had no hope at all. They thought 
God was going to bring about the promised Messiah, this coming king who was going to restore Israel and do all this stuff. They thought that was going to still going to happen. It was just going to happen over there. And so thank goodness that God didn't destroy all of us. But do you see the problem with that? All these prophecies are about what? The fall of Jerusalem. About God throwing down his hammer of judgment and wiping out the city completely. And so you can see Ezekiel's dilemma. How are you going to fulfill your promises then? That's what he's asking God. We're over here in exile. You're going to destroy them. I don't see any possible way that you can be faithful to your promise to to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, to Moses, to Judah, that you said you were going to bring the Messiah. How are you going to do it if you kill us all, right? Or you send us all into exile. Then verse 14, the word of the I am came to me again. So now a new prophecy to answer Ezekiel's question. How can he be faithful to these promises if he leaves Jerusalem and destroys it? Now, I want to just a quick sidebar on questioning God. We're going to talk about this more next week. We're going to talk about faith and doubt, and we're doing Doubting Thomas for Easter. Um, I've never taught Doubting Thomas, so we're going to get into it. Um, Let me give you two examples, though. There's a difference between saying, I have no idea what you're up to, I have no idea how this is going to work, and there's no way this is going to work saying those two things to God. One example is Mary. Angel comes to her. Hey, Mary, you're going to get pregnant and have a kid and everything. She goes, uh, I don't know, Angel, if you took sex ed, but I don't think that's how it works. How's this going to work? And the angel tells her what was going to happen. And she goes, oh, okay, great, I'm in. And then there's uh, Sarai at that point. I don't think she was Sarah yet. Right? Angel of the Lord comes, tells Abraham, you're going to have a kid. You know what she says? <laughs> no right? There was no, how is that going to happen with her? She laughed right in God's face and said no. And, you know, uh, it eventually works out for them, but we're not going to get into that whole story. Here, I think Ezekiel is more like Mary. I think his question is not, God, what are you doing? It's never going to work. I think his question is, God, what are you doing? How is this going to work? I don't understand how you can be faithful to your promises if we're in exile. He legitimately had no idea. He thought those were the people. We put all our hope in that there's still some people in Jerusalem. So if you destroy them all, what's left? How is this going to happen? Verse 15, son of man, he tells him what happened. Your own relatives, those who have the right to redeem your property along with the entire house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the residents of Jerusalem have said, you are far from the Lord, from the I am. This land has been given to us as a possession. So he tells them, look, this is what happened. When you got taken into exile... Back home, it was like a finder's keeper's sort of situation with the people back there. The exiles were taken away in those first two rounds, and the people that were taken away in those first two rounds were like the upper class folks. These were the leaders. These were the rich people. So you can imagine what would happen in any city if all of a sudden all the rich people had to leave. Who gets to live in a rich guy's house? Who gets to drive the rich guy's car? And so when they left, all the people that were still in Jerusalem started divvying up their stuff. And the way that they did it was very arrogant. They said, well, God is judging those people. Uh, Or like we read last week, well, Yahweh's dead. He doesn't even care anymore, so we can do whatever we want. Either way, I'm still here and God still loves me. I'm the good guy. I'm the one that didn't get taken into exile. So I'm going to live in his house. I'm going to drive the Mercedes. I'm going to watch his TV. Right? In a way, they had written off the exiles. We're the remnant. We're the good ones. They're the ones that are over there on a timeout. But that's not the way God saw it. Verse 16, therefore, say, this is what the I am says. 
Though I sent them far, far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Wait, what? This is a complete reversal of everything these exiles thought. The word sanctuary here has kind of a double layer of meaning. Usually it means like the sanctuary, like the tabernacle, the temple, whatever. Here, though, it means that, but it also means protection. You know, as in like I'm running to somewhere I can be safe in a sanctuary. And so God says, you think I'm on the team with the people in Jerusalem, but I'm not. I'm leaving. Meanwhile, you're over here. I'm with you guys. I'm by the Kibar Canal. That's why you saw my presence over there. I've been a sanctuary for the exiles. Uh, when I was doing the foster care training stuff, you know, we learned about time-ins. Do you know what a time-in is? You know what a time-out is? Yeah, we all know about time-outs. Let me tell you, I'm the world champion of having time-outs in life. Uh, as between the years of whenever kids get time-outs, I probably set the world record. Me and that chair in that corner, we got real close. Uh, the purpose of a timeout is like punitive punishment. John, you, I don't know, broke the window or threw your brother out the window or whatever. I don't know, go sit in the corner. You know, you're being punished for this. Okay, a time-in was different. I never had a time-in. Nobody wanted to be around me. But <laughs> I never had a time-in. But the purpose of a time-in is different. It's restoration and reset. The idea is... With a timeout, you send a kid by themselves and they sit in the corner. Am I the only one that had to sit in the corner, by the way? You guys are looking at me. I remember, I don't want to say this because I think they listen to the podcast. I remember it was either my parents or my grandparents. Somebody put me in a room and just like turn, put me in a chair in the middle of the room, turn the lights off. I just sat there in the dark like, oh, I really did it this time, you know. Uh, that's a timeout. By yourself, you know, time in is the parent sits with the kid during the timeout, time in. They sit there, and it's, there's not a lot of talking, and it's not a lot of explaining. It's just it's kind of like a hard reset. The people in exile thought, and the people in Jerusalem, they both thought that this was the way it was working, that the exiles were in a timeout, and that God was punishing them, and that the Jerusalem folks were the favorites, you know, like Ben and Chris or whatever. Uh, but in reality, what happened was the exiles were on a time in. God was sitting at the Kibar Canal next to them on the bed, saying, yeah, you're in trouble, but I'm right here with you. The Jerusalem folks, they weren't the favorites. They were the kid that was getting kicked out of the family. Right? They were the kid that was getting shunned. Amish style. Wait, is that the Amish? You know what I mean. No, it's not the Amish, is it? You know, one of those cults. Not Amish, they're not a cult. But one of those cults that shuns people. God was like, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're writing you off. And so the next thing God says is, the good news is, time ins, they don't last forever. You don't sit in a time in until you're 18. Therefore, verse 17, therefore say, this is what Yahweh says. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So in Jeremiah 29, uh, do I have a slide for that? Yeah, click one forward. Um, there's this promise, um, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. So through Jeremiah, the contemporary, God tells him, this is not going to last forever. And in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is exactly what we see. The people come back. 
And then verse 18, uh, back in Ezekiel, when they arrive there, they will remove all its abhorrent acts and detestable practices from it. So this is the same as like a time in. Sometimes kids get all wild and worked up and they need a reset. And so they sit with mom and dad for a few minutes and they calm their bodies down and they come out of it and they, their bodies are regulated. I've never seen this, but I've read about it. Just kidding. <laughs> this is what God did with his people spiritually. He sat with his kids and he did that thing that I do where it's like, take a breath. Let's do it together. You know, and when they get back, everything is, um, is reset. And that's what happened. The people got back, but they weren't perfect. But they did come back with a new attitude and a new uh, commitment to the covenant with God. In Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back and they rebuild the temple and the city walls. And we read about how they celebrate Passover again. And then one of my favorite parts of scripture is uh, Nehemiah 8.8. 8. Um, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. This is what we do every Sunday. They read from the book and somebody explained it and the people went home and said, I'm going to try to do that. This was not what happened before the exile, but they came back from exile like this. And then synagogues popped up during this time where they said, we need to get together even when we're not near the temple. We need to have church kind of. And then the Pharisees popped up during this time. And we think of Pharisees and we think of, you know, our Pharisees, uh, those are the bad guys. But they started as a spiritual renewal movement. Hey, we want to make sure the exile never happens again. And they went a little too far, I think, with a lot of the, what they did. But it goes deeper. It gets even better. Verse 19, I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. This is something we're going to talk about a lot more when we get into later parts of Ezekiel. It's called the new covenant. And what God says is, you have this covenant with Moses, but I'm going to give you a better covenant than the one we did with Moses. And one of the big differences, I'm going to give you a new heart. Because the heart you have now isn't capable of keeping the covenant. That's kind of the whole point, is to show you how bad your heart is. But when the people come back, God says, my relationship with you is going to be deeper. It's going to change. This is all foreshadowing the coming of the work of Jesus. But not everybody's going to want in on this deal, verse 21. But for those whose hearts pursue their desire for abhorrent acts and detestable practices. So this is all that idolatrous stuff we read about the last few weeks. I will bring their conduct down on their own heads. This is the declaration of the I am. So this is that, again, he's saying these folks in Jerusalem have it all backwards. And just like I'm promising this new heart and this new deal for you exiles, I'm promising judgment for the people in Jerusalem. And then in the middle of the vision, verse 22, the cherubim with the wheels beside them lifted up their wings and the glory of God of Israel was above them. Then the glory of the I am rose up from within the city. So in the middle of Jerusalem, the glory of God rose up and stopped on the mountain east of the city. That's super depressing. The glory throne that had been like this glory of God that had been in the temple in a special way since Solomon hundreds of years earlier gets up. And you know where it stops? If you do the, if you look at, because it says on the east of the city, east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. It stops at the Mount of Olives, and that's the last place we see it. We don't know, does he stick around to watch the judgment? Does he head over? The implication is, that's like the direction of, I'm heading towards Babylon. I'm heading east, right? And so that's the, how they cap off the vision. There's, there's idolatry, judgment, all this stuff, and then God, he gets up and leaves. And then verse 24, 
and 25, the end of the, the chapter. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to Chaldea. That's uh, Babylon. That's another word for Babylon. And the exiles, and to the exiles in a vision from the Spirit of God. After the vision I had seen left me, I spoke to the exiles about all the things that the I am had shown me. So these elders, they come and they ask Ezekiel, hey, where's God? Why are we in exile? Are we ever going home? Is he going to protect the people in Jerusalem? You know, they have all these questions. We talked about that at the beginning of chapter uh, 8. And then he has this vision, and then it's over, and he wakes up from the vision. I don't know what actually happened. He goes, all right, guys, I've got an answer, and you're not going to like it. And he recaps the whole scene for these elders as they sit there. And then next week, we're going to talk uh, more about Israel and the leaders and that sort of stuff. Um, but the big point of these four chapters is this, that the exiles and the Jerusalem folks, these Jerusalemites, they made a few assumptions. And like I said, they assumed that the people in Jerusalem were God's favorites, and the people in exile were the ones being punished. They assumed that the people in Jerusalem were the remnant that God was going to use to bring about his promises, and that the people in exile were just going to disappear into nothing, like the ten tribes who had been taken captive uh, from the northern kingdom of Israel. But the truth was different. The truth was that God was going to leave Jerusalem, and he was abandoning his house, and the exiles were the remnant, right? Not the people in Jerusalem. All the way over in Babylon, he says, you, you guys are the ones who I'm going to keep these promises through. And this theme is interesting because it, it, the theme of God's presence continues through the whole Bible. What happens is they come back, they build the new temple, but it gets picked up with Jesus. And what Jesus says is, you guys think you'll tear the temple down, you know, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Jesus kind of says, look, I'm the new temple. I'm the presence of God. And then Acts 2 happens. Acts 2 is pretty cool. All the people get together, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's fire, but not fire of judgment, right? Like from this chapter, it's the tongues of fire where the presence of God is unleashed on his people. And God says, you're the new temple. You're the new temple together. When you get together, you're where the presence of God lives. Um, you're the new temple individually. When you're at home reading your Bible, you're filled with the Spirit, you, are, you carry with you the presence of God. Let me show you these two verses. The first one is you individually, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit dwells within you? In you. You carry the... What, what Ezekiel was so bummed about, the presence of God has left Jerusalem, that presence of God lives within you, but also within us as a people, in whom the whole structure being joined together, this is Ephesians, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when we gather together and we worship and we sing and we fellowship, we have the presence of God with us. So we live here in San Francisco. And when I was planting a church in San Francisco, I've told you guys this before, but somebody actually said to me, why would you plant a church in San Francisco? There's no Christians there. And I said, yeah, well, that's kind of the whole point, you know? I mean, it, I don't know. I don't have the Starbucks mentality. Let's put a Starbucks next door to another Starbucks, right? Like, let's go find where there isn't one. Don't go to Starbucks, by the way. It's disgusting. Amen. Let's pray. No. Um, we called this series the people of God in Babylon because we live in Babylon and we're the people of God. See? See what I did there? Real fancy. 
And sometimes, living in Babylon, it feels very hard to follow Jesus. It's very hard to plant churches here. Sometimes we have these same kind of questions that the elders probably had. Looking around, we think, where is God? Where is the presence of God? And the answer in this chapter is he's right here in the middle of Babylon. Wherever you go as a child of God, you shine the light of his presence. Wherever we gather as his people, right, his light shines. So how does this apply to us then and the Pabst Blue Ribbon Outreach Pathway? This is our motivation, not guilt. I I don't want you to ever just feel guilty and say, boy, John's going to be on me about Pabst Blue Ribbon, so I better tell this guy about Jesus. Mm -mm, I'd rather you just shut up and don't say anything. This is not, that's not our motivation. It's never guilt. This is our motivation. Our, it's not do this or Jesus won't love you. It's I have seen the light and I carry the light with me everywhere I go. And everywhere I go, God promises to shine a light through me. You don't have to engage in missional living and Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff. You get to. It's two very different ways to think about it. Let's pretend you had a superpower, okay? And not some dumb one like flying, an even dumber one that I just made up because it's not a superpower. Imagine that this was true of you, that by shaking hands with cancer patients, some of them got healed, right? You walked around, you shook hands with cancer patients and a bunch of them would get healed. Like for real, not some creepy church preacher who you have to send a dollar to and then he'll heal your cancer. Let's imagine that for a second. This is totally not how it works, but let's just imagine that this was actually true of you. Let's lower the bar. Let's say shaking hands with cancer patients, one out of 25 of them was completely healed from cancer. So 24 of them are not, but one out of 25 is. If you knew that that was absolutely true of you, how would you spend most of your time? What would you do? What would you do with your day-to-day life? You'd be in hospitals every day shaking every hand that you could. You would be running for president so you could shake hands down the line because people don't even know they have cancer. You'd be passing on the cure to as many people as you could. You'd be obsessed with shaking hands and to the point where people would think you were nuts. That's the handshaking guy. That's the handshaking lady. They're always trying to shake my hand. You know, and then they find out you're curing cancer and they're like, oh, that's actually pretty cool, right? Anyway, if we, the people of God, really do carry his presence with us in a special way, if that's really true, why don't we live like it? Why aren't we going out to the sick? Why do we expect them to come to us? Again, I don't want the motivation to be guilt. I I want the motivation to be the more that you breathe in the gospel, you see Jesus the gospel hits you in your very soul, the next step is, I mean, breathing in and then just holding your breath forever is not a healthy way to live. You breathe in the gospel and then you breathe the gospel out. I've seen Jesus, I've taken in the light, and now the light shines from me. The light shines from our church. It's a crazy system, but it's pretty cool because God doesn't need us. You could just show up and tell everybody, hey, I'm God, by the way. But this is not what he does. He uses dummies. He uses people like us. And he says, I'm going to fill this dummy with my light, and they're going to walk around, and people are going to see, hey, that dummy has the light of God. Those dummy people, those idiots that get together, they share the light of God, and they're going to see God through us. So I'll end with this quote. The new Israel, this is G.K. Beale, 
wrote a bunch of really great books. Um, the new Israel, the church, that's us, is to draw its power from the spirit, from the divine presence before God's throne in its drive to stand against the world's resistance. I love that, right? Like we're living in Babylon. We're living in the middle of darkness and we need to be a bright light. But the only way to do that is to first engage, to breathe in the gospel, take that light in so that then we can breathe it out. Amen? All right, let's pray.